It's Latopia Daily, the web's first daily bulletin about writing and publishing. And now, here's Peter Cox. Hello, it's Tuesday. It's day two of my personal crusade to get you away from the keyboard a little bit and doing a bit of exercise, because we discussed yesterday that the writing lifestyle is not necessarily the healthiest in the world. So if you're going to, um, to become a little more active, my advice is to, is to find a gym. Finding a good gym these days is as rare as hen's teeth. They all seem to be chains, and they all seem to offer pretty poor value for money. So you may just have to take uh, whatever is convenient for you. Once you've signed up and they've taken the money off you, which is the only thing that most gyms are really interested in doing, getting the standing order going, uh, the next thing they'll try to do is to take more money from you by signing up to uh, a personal trainer. Now, there are some tricks here that I can tell you about briefly. It is a good idea to have a, a trainer. It's not a good idea to use a trainer the way that most people do. Typically what will happen is you'll meet some spotty oik, probably called Josh, fresh out of school, and Josh will try to sign you up for 10, 20, package of 50 training sessions at a vastly inflated uh, price. Uh, don't do it. It's not good value for money and it's not what you need. The mistake that most people make when they start using a trainer is that they don't learn anything. They put their brains on autopilot. And you see it happening all the time. They go into the gym, the trainer's there, says, right, you're going to do this, now you're going to do that, now we're going to go and do some floor work, now we're going to do some resistance. And they go through the motions, and at the end of the session, they've had a good workout, probably, hopefully they have, but they haven't learned a damn thing. What I'd like to suggest is a completely different way of doing it. Uh, the first time you meet up with a trainer, they will ask you a very common series of questions. And they always ask one particular question, which is, uh, now, Peter, what are your personal fitness goals? Now, 99 out of 100 people have never thought about this, and they sort of say, well, I'd like to be a bit fitter, or I'd like to lose a bit of weight, or, and the trainer nods wisely, writes a lot of stuff down that you don't understand, and you're basically in their hands from then onwards. Instead of that, what I suggest um, is, is, a, is a good response is, well, I'd like to work out a simple exercise routine that I can do by myself three or four times a week, and if you help me do that, then I'll come back and see you again in a month's time, just to check everything's going well. Now, some trainers might like that at all, in which case, goodbye to them. But others will understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to learn, and you're trying to take control over something that is, after all, very personal to you, which is your own fitness. And it's that sort of trainer that you want to work with. A little bit more about this subject tomorrow. Now here's Eve to tell us about Patagonia. Today, the 15th of July, is St Swithin's Day, the patron saint of the weather. There is a weather proverb that goes, St Swithin's Day, if thou dost rain, for 40 days it will remain. St Swithin's Day, if thou be fair, for 40 days it will rain the mare. So if it's raining today, then I'm afraid you're stuffed. It's going to rain for another 40. I found a quote from Iris Murdoch, who was born on this day, July the 15th, 1919. She said, a bad review is even less important than when it's raining in Patagonia, which I thought was wonderful, although I imagine not easy to believe. The best summing up of Iris Murdoch I found on the web was from The Guardian. Murdoch brought philosophical rigour, ethical commitment and a huge intellect of fiction. On being asked how long she took off between books, she's said to have replied, about half an hour. Her many novels all feature mythic symbolic elements and close complex relationships. She won the Booker for Tempest Retelling the Sea the Sea. 
In the last years of her life, she descended into Alzheimer's, at first thinking it was simply writer's block, which she described while still lucid as being in a very, very bad, quiet place, a dark place. I'll leave you with one final word from her. Writing is like getting married. One should never commit oneself until one is amazed at one's luck. That's it. More tomorrow. Thank you very much, Eve. And now let's catch up with the latest news from Donna, who starts with an instance of real-life imitating art. I don't know if you remember a film in 2001 starring Billy Connolly called The Man Who Sued God. Well, yeah, it's happening. Thanks, Peter. Today's top story asks the question, can you sue God's publishers? A federal court in Michigan will soon give us the answer, at least in the U.S., A man is suing Zondervan Publishing and Thomas Nelson, Inc. because their editions of the Bible declare homosexuality to be a sin. He says he has suffered discrimination, emotional distress, and mental instability. He's seeking $70 million total from the two companies. The passage he has the problem with? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. The companies apparently edited out the word homosexual from later editions. This lawsuit is interesting to me, not because I think it stands a snowball's chance in the U.S., but because we've talked a lot about the laws against hate speech in Britain. And I'm wondering, would such a lawsuit survive and even thrive in Britain? And if it does, will shaven men start suing over passages requiring them to be put to death? Will women sue Bible publishers for the plethora of anti-female passages? Will the Koran be next? I really want to know how far the laws will go in Britain before folks rise up and fight back for free speech. As to the U.S. suit, I give it less than two months before it gets dismissed, as well it should. Today I seem to be celebrating more work for my fellow lawyers. The daughter of Lassie Come Home author Eric Knight has been allowed to terminate classic media's copyrights in the story. The Ninth Circuit Court's opinion addressed a complicated issue of copyright law involving whether the law's termination of transfer right was wiped out by a post-1978 assignment of the rights. In a victory for authors and their heirs, the court found that the rights are not terminated. Knight granted his rights to make the television series to a predecessor to Classic in 1940. Knight's heirs renewed the copyrights in the 1960s. Classic obtained an assignment of rights from one of Knight's three daughters— who assigned their rights in 1976, and an additional grant of ancillary rights only from the daughter who successfully sued. In 1996, the daughter served a termination notice, and Classic claimed that she couldn't. The court determined that her assignment of ancillary rights didn't end her right to terminate. This is good news for writers and their heirs, who could otherwise have lost the rights to their works. Here's a story that really gets my goats. Literary agents have decided to quit wasting their time with pesky living authors and instead are fighting over dead authors' estates. First, Andrew, the jackal Wiley, takes Evelyn Waugh's estate from PFD, then rescues Navikov from Smith Skolnick. Then, PFD appoints a single agent to manage its estates. They plan to announce, quote, the bagging of the estate of a very big British author, end quote. Then, United Agents announces it has Ian Fleming's estate. Okay, so dead authors don't need lunch and are hardly ever neurotic. They won't email their agents or get terminal word blindness. Still, is anyone else bothered by this trend? What's a writer to do? Do we have to become zombies to get any attention? Hopefully, some sensible literary agents out there will buck this silly trend and choose to represent living writers instead of the deceased. Those are today's headlines, Peter. Links to these and other headlines can be found in the Write Report.
I hope all our listeners have a terrific Writing Tuesday. Yeah, thanks very much, Donnie. I saw that report too about literary agents moving in on to the estates of uh, dead but very famous authors. Uh, a lot of hype in, in the report, but notwithstanding that, it does reflect the fact that one or two big estates have changed agents recently, which probably wouldn't have happened um, a few years ago. It also reflects market conditions generally. I mean, the first thing, of course, is there are way too many agents out there, mainly caused by publishers making people redundant. And the first thing that happens when a publisher is made redundant is they think of becoming an agent. That's probably the last thing they should think about, actually, because the skill set is entirely different and they have to cope with running their own business, which they've never done before. However, that doesn't seem to stop them. The other thing that's happening that's quite interesting is I know one particular agent, and possibly more than one, attracted this kind of business by slashing their commission. This seems to me to be absolutely freaking stupid. In a time when authors and clients generally need better service, harder work, we shouldn't be slashing our commission. We should be charging more and delivering more to the client. End of my rant. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow. <laughs> Catch Latopia Daily five days a week from www.latopia.com.